When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement who does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. President Biden's powerful new ad on the Trump threat to democracy amid new polling that shows a shocking number of Americans don't believe what they saw with their own eyes on January 6th. Plus, two new challenges to Trump's place on the ballot, this time in Florida and Illinois, as a deadline looms for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide on his disqualification in Colorado. Also tonight, the scandal that the Republican-led Oversight Committee won't be investigating, the millions of dollars Trump raked in from foreign governments while he was president. But we begin tonight with the 2024 election cycle that's already underway. Nearly three years after a heavily armed Trump-incited mob attacked not just the U.S. Capitol building, but also democracy and the rule of law. Tomorrow, President Joe Biden will deliver his first major re-election speech of the new year, marking the third anniversary of the January 6th attack. The speech will amp up his warning about the fragility of America's democracy at a time when the stakes couldn't be higher. We're in a DEFCON 1 moment for American democracy. And the Biden campaign is focused on the urgent message that American democracy would not survive another Trump presidency. It's a simple message when you think about it. But how the American public feels about that message, well, not so simple. According to a new poll by The Washington Post and the University of Maryland, a quarter of Americans say it is probably or definitely true that the FBI instigated the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That, of course, is a false conspiracy theory promoted by right-wing media and repeatedly denied by federal law enforcement. The numbers are even more telling when you break it down by Trump versus Biden voters. 44% of those who voted for Trump say the FBI instigated the attack, compared to 10% of Biden voters. The results confirm that misinformation about January 6th is widespread as the United States heads into a presidential election year during a campaign in which the leading Republican candidate has repeatedly expressed support for those who participated in the insurrection. It's also a stunning instance of people developing a far-fetched conspiracy theory about an event we literally watched unfold for hours on live television, an event that was investigated by a bipartisan House committee that interviewed more than a thousand people who were witness to or involved in the violence that day, almost all of whom are Republicans and were Trump supporters or even members of his administration. This election year also kicks off as the Republican frontrunner is embroiled in a dizzying amount of legal trouble involving fraud, hush money, election subversion, and Mar-a-Lago documents that he wasn't entitled to. The cases against Trump carry the possibility of significant penalties, including prison time, which, of course, is part of his motivation to get back into the White House by any means necessary. Trump has been impeached twice, 
tried to thwart the peaceful transfer of power after he lost the 2020 election, and he vows to only be a dictator on his first day in office. Even a sliver of these issues would rule out any other candidate from the ballot and from American public life forever. But not Trump, who commands a literal cult following, who swallow his self-serving lies whole and do not care if he committed crimes. In fact, they are fine with him becoming a dictator. So buckle up. We are just getting started. But first on the agenda, President Biden has to speak to this. So what's the strategy? Joining me now is Adrian Elrod, Democratic strategist and former senior aide for the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign. Stuart Stevens, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. And Molly Jongfast, special correspondent for Vanity Fair and host of the Fast Politics podcast. I'm going to start with you, Adrian, my friend, here at the desk with me. Uh, President Biden is going to give this speech at Valley Forge. He's going to try to meet this moment and address this looming threat to our democracy. What do you expect him to say Part one. And part two, what should he say? Well, I think, first of all, you know, Joy, it's 2024. The election is 10 months away. You are seeing the Biden campaign really take a more forceful effort to draw a contrast with President Trump, even though President Trump is certainly not the nominee yet. It it certainly looks like we're moving in that direction. So you're seeing more of an aggressive posture from the campaign. This campaign is also making it very clear the Biden campaign is saying we are running as though democracy depends on it because it does. So one of the major things that I think you're going to see starting tomorrow through the end of the campaign is autocracy. Do you want to live under an autocratic regime, which Trump would bring to the table? Or do you want to live in a democracy, which is what President Biden, of course, is overseeing as president of the United States? He's really going to draw in that contrast. Um, It's also very historic that he's going to Valley Forge. You know, I think, you know, going to a place where President Washington made a really uh, historic speech also reminds voters that this country was founded on democracy um, and and freedom. So I think he's going to a really important place to make a statement. And again, you're going to go out there. Obviously, foreign policy has led the news the past few months. Um, You're going to see this campaign and this White House, I think, really make a pivot to drawing more of a contrast with President Trump. And I think we're all ready for it. I think President Mm -hmm. Biden's ready for it. Um, And we really have to make the case to the American people because elections are about choices. And that is why I think this new stance from the campaign is really important to really draw that contrast. And, you know, the Valley Forge piece, Stuart, um, is significant because, of course, George Washington could have been a dictator. Um, The American uh, public at that time revered him and would have allowed him to serve as many terms as he wanted. We actually did have a president who served for life, FDR. He served four terms until he literally was deceased. And it was only after that that you had an amendment to the Constitution that limited the president to two terms. It was always a tradition. But it's a tradition that every president after between George Washington and FDR followed. Donald Trump is the first president to refuse to leave office, right? That's just a thing we haven't had before. But here's another thing we haven't had before. People who literally see something, or maybe we have, and just actually say they didn't see it. Here is the percentage of Democrats who say that those who entered the Capitol were mostly violent. 77% of Democrats, I don't know about the other (laughs) nearly quarter of them, 18% of Republicans, only 54% of independents. We're in an age of unreality, Stuart. That's also what's different. What do you expect President Biden should do about it? And is there something he can say that might change that? Look, I don't think there's anything you can say to those people. They don't believe that Joe Biden is a legal president. You kind of have to wrap your mind around that construct. Um, So if you don't believe your president is a legal president, what can you say? Well, you know, I did a good job on inflation, but I'm illegal. Uh, These voters are unreachable. 
And I think it's really skewing the polls. If I was polling in this race, I would ask a screening question. Do you believe that Joe Biden won a free and fair election? And if you didn't, I would just toss you out of the poll because why test, test these people? There's nothing they yeah. can say to them. Um, you know, I think one of the great truths of campaigns is that if you want voters to care about an issue, the campaign has to care about it. Um, so I, I think it is tremendous that he's sort of kicking off this campaign. There'll be a lot of kickoffs to this campaign, but this is going to be one talking about democracy. The higher the stakes are in this race, I think the better Biden does. Um, the majority of Americans agree with Joe Biden on actually, you know, not just democracy, but on most of these issues from abortion to gun control to Ukraine. Um, Republicans are needing a minority vote to win. And that's, you know, a, certainly a possibility with our electoral college. But yeah. Biden is going to have to win this thing by about four points in the popular vote, probably, to win the electoral college. So, you know, I never was involved in a campaign where I sat around on election night waiting for the results and thought we started too soon. So I, I'm glad they're getting about the business of, uh, of drawing this contrast. You know, and the thing is, Molly, the problem that Joe Biden has is that Donald Trump's, you know, 37 to 40 percent are solid. It's a cult. Like, they actually, there's nothing he could do. He could literally kill someone on Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for him. Biden's coalition, not so much, right? Inflation is down. Economy is good. But a lot of his voters are very enraged over Gaza. A lot of young and progressive voters are saying they're not going to support him. There are a lot of voters who are disappointed because, you know, the sluggish nature of politics means he couldn't do everything on student loans. He's got, like, fractious issues. And on the other side, he's counting on people remembering Roe v. Wade was overturned and still being angry enough about that to vote for him and thinking that democracy really is on the line. And it's not clear. I mean, there are even some Democrats. I'm not sure. That, is democracy a strong enough argument with all of the rest of that that's fracturing his base? Well, I would take you back to the midterms, the 2022 midterms, when we were told by polls before that there was going to be a red wave and mm -hmm. Biden was giving speeches about democracy. And people were like, this is never going to work. Remember, he gave a big yeah. speech on democracy. Everyone said it's very nice that this lovely guy likes democracy so much, but it's never going to work out for him. And it turned out that red wave never materialized. So, I mean, look, I just think. I don't think we are in the golden age of polling anymore. I really don't. And if you look at Virginia, at those Virginia state elections, like people were not going along with Republicans to get along. Even Glenn Youngkin, who sold a more moderate version of Trumpism, re voters rejected that, too. So I actually think, look, we don't know what's going to happen. We're still far out. But Biden has. And again, I'm a person who who didn't think he was going to win the primary in 2015. I mean, this guy keeps getting underestimated and this guy keeps polling poorly. But the reality is the economy is ticking up. We are like the miracle economy of all economies. Right. Our infl inflation is down. You know, we've had this miraculous soft landing. There are definitely people who are unhappy and it's a big tent party and there's a lot of fractions, a lot of really important issues going on. But I think he has time to bring the coalition together. Yeah, I remember Adrian being uh, being seen as a, the, one of the loopy people with Simon Rosenberg and Tom Bonnier oh, saying yeah. that it wasn't going to be an abortion election. And, you know, lo and behold, we were sort of lonely were right. in saying we that, right. but mm -hmm. we were right about that. But in this case, though, 
on the side of abortion. In addition to that, you have Gaza, which is, again, fractious. You also have a quarter of Americans believing the following. This is Richard Baum. He's 61-year-old. He's an independent voter from Texas. Yeah, he's Texas. It's, he's, we know where he's going to go. The people who went there, they expressed their views to support Trump, were peaceful. The government implants were the violent ones, the FBI, the police people who were put in there, the Antifa and BLM hired by George Soros. Everybody knows that. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, the thing is, is that that sounds mad, like madness to most people, sure. but that is the sign of a coalition that is absolutely solid yeah. behind Donald Trump, no matter what. Yeah. Biden's coalition isn't solid. You don't have anyone out there making mad statements like that on his behalf. How does he keep his very fractured coalition together? Well, look, I think Stuart raised a really good point, which is, and I, you did too, which is that Trump has got this, you know, 35 to 40 percent of the electorate that is with him, which means that, you know, President Biden has to work even, you know, that much harder to garner independence to really rebuild the coalition or even like build a new coalition compared to what we had in 2020. I mean, Hillary's coalition was different in 16 than Biden's. And so we'll see what it shapes out to be this, this time around. But again, I think when you look at the fact that, you know, Molly just said the economy is getting better, inflation's going down, um, you know, the, the, the job numbers have been outstanding. Uh, you combine that with the abortion issue and, again, with the fact that democracy is truly at stake in this election, it's truly under threat. Um, all of those issues, I do believe, as we get closer to the election, will start to really gel in the minds of voters. We haven't even really started the general election yet. Yes, President Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee. More than likely, Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. But it's not definitive yet. And you are seeing this in polling, too, where a lot of voters are saying, I'm not really tuned in yet. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to see who the Republican nominee is going to be. I mean, once that actually is, is a head-to-head -head with Biden-Trump, I think the contrast is going to become more clear. And I think the minds of voters are going to be more made up to, you know, start to lean more into the, the good side of things, the pro-democracy, the pro-economy. Um, and it, as long as inflation keeps going down and interest mm. rates go down, I think that's going to make a big I difference. I love your optimism. Uh, Molly, you've been very critical of the media because the media has a role to play here. And, and, I, and I don't right. think the media has necessarily shown itself to be up to the task of fighting fascism. Um, but I'll let you let you elaborate on that, because, you know, how the media plays <laughs> this and whether they try to sort of treat Trump as this normal candidate, that is a factor, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And actually, there was a headline from the Associated Press today that I, I saw it this morning. I couldn't even believe it. You know, it was some say, you know, January 6th was bad. Others say <laughs> storming the Capitol is, a, I mean, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was yeah. shockingly normalizing. You know, there are people who are in jail because of what Donald Trump led them to do. And we're looking at this as a, pop, you know, two sides. I mean, that was terrifying. I also think, look, you know, Republicans worked the refs really well. They have, you know, they continually say, you know, they they are pushing and they, you know, they say that their guy is not being treated fairly. He's lowered expectations in a way that's really served him, Trump. And, you know, you don't see I mean, I wrote about this this right after the holidays. Trump was truthing these insane conspiracy theories, this crazy stuff. And you had a conservative news cycle that was mad at Biden for not saying his favorite food was ice cream, right? <laughs> because he had said he had been eating a lot of chicken parm. So you have to realize, like, these two candidates are not being treated the same at all. And it's a real structural problem. Also, you know, these Republicans lie, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them lie with impunity. And so they are able to work the reps in a way that, yeah. the, you know, some of these Democrats are not. Uh, and Stuart, there, I mean, obviously, there's the other X factor here. I'm just going to put up the calendar of Donald Trump's trials, civil and criminal. 
And they all are interspersed, as you can see from that graphic, with things like the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. It's all just mixed in together. This is a guy who is running to stay out of prison. Let's just be clear and to pardon himself. What impact do you expect his being on trial in multiple yeah, states well, and cases have? Well, have- I think this is helping him in the primary because, again, you have to get inside their minds. If you believe that Donald Trump actually is the legal president of the United States, it makes perfect sense that this deep state conspiracy, they have to convict him and put him in jail to stop him from returning to the White House where he would. It, it's sort of like crop circles or something, you know, once you understand that everything makes sense or like, you know, aliens built the pyramid. Um, but I, I don't think this is going to be a plus in a general election. Yeah, I, I, I think you got to bet on America here. I, I think most Americans are going to see a future president, a past president in uh, the dock and find it unsettling. You know, Donald Trump is I think there's going to be a big dynamics in this race. Donald Trump is very much a candidate of the past. He's still relitigating the 20 election on all of these issues. The Republicans are just incredibly uncomfortable with where America's going, which is the future. You know, say what you will about Joe Biden's age. His best group was under 25 voters in 20. He won them by 11. He represents a more optimistic future uh, belief in America. And I think that's going to for a lot. Uh, I love the enthusiasm. I mean, the the optimism tonight. We're going to go. We're going to go with that. And I'm technically supposed to be optimistic because my name is Joy. Uh, Adrian Elrod, Stuart Stevens, Molly Jong Fast. Thank you all very much. Keep hope alive. Up next on the readout, a Florida democracy defender joins voters and officials in at least 30 states in challenging Trump's eligibility to hold the office of president of the United States. The secretary of state from one of those states, Colorado's Jenna Griswold, joins me next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. With the presidential primaries and caucuses about to get underway in less than two weeks, more states are facing lawsuits challenging Donald Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot. At least 34 states have been asking the question of whether Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss, including his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, make him ineligible to hold the presidency again. At least 20 of those challenges remain unresolved. Four of them were filed just this week in Florida, Illinois, Virginia, and Massachusetts. Colorado and Maine are the only two states to have already kicked Trump off the primary ballot. Trump has appealed both decisions. His Colorado case is set to be the first to go to the Supreme Court. If or when the court takes up the case is yet to be seen, but it could come as early as tomorrow when the justices hold one of their regular meetings. 
And joining me now is Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. Secretary Griswold, thank you for being here. Walk us through what happens and what the timeline looks like for you, because I understand that tomorrow is actually the deadline for you all to decide who's on the ballot. So how does what the Supreme Court does tomorrow impact Colorado? Well, first off, always great to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So tomorrow is the day I certify the ballot. So that's the day that I'll tell all the counties who can be on the ballots that they subsequently will print. But we have this big appeal in front of us. Um, But before we get to the United States Supreme Court, the Colorado Supreme Court, while it did say that Donald Trump was disqualified and that he engaged in insurrection, it also said that if an appeal was filed, that he should be put back on the ballot. So tomorrow, if we don't hear anything from the United States Supreme Court, I will certify Trump's name on the ballot. And then we will wait to see whether the U.S. Supreme Court takes the case. And if the Supreme Court then rules that he must come off of the ballot, would you then have to reprint all of the ballots? I know Colorado is a mail-in only state. Would you have to reprint them all? So we're both uh, in-person voting, um, but we have early in-person voting and, of of course, election day in-person voting, vote by mail for all state. Um, But actually, on top of that, overseas and military ballots will be sent out this month under federal law. So the answer to, to what happens in that situation really depends on the timing. We have had situations in Colorado where a candidate drops out of a race after their name is already on or they somehow become disqualified. And I'll just make sure to read whatever ruling very closely and and work with my team so that we have a great election in accordance with the law. Let me go through some of the arguments that Donald Trump is making in his appeal. So here are their their, their two main arguments. Number one is that Section 3 is inapplicable to the president of the United States because he is not an officer, takes a different oath, and that Donald Trump did not, in fact, engage in insurrection. What do you make of those arguments? Uh, Well, you know, Donald Trump wants to argue he didn't engage in insurrection. As you said in your uh, prior segment, we all saw with our own eyes what happened on January 6th. We all witnessed what Donald Trump did prior to the insurrection and after and trying to steal the presidency. And on top of that, two courts have looked at this question and two courts have said he did indeed engage in insurrection. They did indeed. Let me uh, let me include in the Colorado Supreme Court, obviously. Let me let you listen to Christina Bob. And this is she's going to explain a little further their 14th Amendment argument. And she makes actually a rather stunning claim that I'd love to get your response to. Here's Christina Bob. The reason why it doesn't apply to the president was because the drafters of the 14th Amendment realized that the president is elected by the entire nation and it should be the entire nation who determines who they want for president, whether they're guilty of insurrection or not. It's up to the people. Whether they're guilty of insurrection or not, the people should be able to decide. Your thoughts on that? Well, I don't want to go as far as to say she's making all of that up, um, but I I would love to see her sources. Uh, You know, I I think it's pretty clear that there should not be some carve-out in the Constitution for the presidency, especially when we're talking about a carve-out that would bar insurrectionists from holding office again. We're in this situation that, uh, you know, I I think it's hard for some to imagine. We are facing an election when someone who tried to steal this country incited an insurrection that led to loss of life 
of police officers could be reelected. So I, I very much disagree with her. But ultimately, yeah. it's up to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court needs to give clarity to the American people whether someone who commits insurrection can hold the highest office in the land again. Let me, what the Supreme, what the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3, is very clear about is that members of Congress are officers of the court who took an oath and can be barred for insurrection. I'm just going to put up a non-exhaustive list of people who could be considered insurrectionists. These are the people who attended a December 21, 2020 White House meeting to overturn the election. Um, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry, Mo Brooks, Louis Gohmert, Andy Harris, a bunch of them, Paul Gosar. And then there's Lauren Boebert, who I think a lot of people would also consider a supporter of insurrection. Could, are you surprised that more people, that, that no one has attempted to remove her, who's now switched uh, districts in your state of Colorado or other members of Congress, the same way they're attempting to remove Trump from these ballots? We have seen some cases over the last year and a half uh, attempting to remove candidates. Uh, and it has worked in the state of New Mexico, where actually I, I believe a county commissioner was removed. Yep. Uh, these cases require proving that someone engaged in insurrection. And, and what does that mean? Um, I, I think with Donald Trump, it's pretty clear uh, his intent, his actions to incite the insurrection. Other cases are, are not as clear. Some cases become moot if a candidate uh, you know, doesn't win their primary or the general election. But I, I unfortunately believe that uh, the use of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment may become a, a more commonplace thing, as we've seen the far right embrace trying to steal elections to hold on to power. Yeah, but I think a lot of people would say if you're an insurrectionist, it's proper use. But we shall see what happens. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, thank you very much. And coming up, a new report from the House Oversight Committee finds Trump's businesses received millions of dollars from foreign countries during his presidency. You know, the kind of thing Republicans are accusing President Biden of doing, just without the receipts. We'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. We've never seen a presidential family receive these sums of money from adversaries around the world. And we're just talking about a couple of countries today. I mean, if, if, if you look at the, the countries that this family was influence peddling in, China's probably the most reputable country on the list, if that tells you anything. 
<laughs> that was House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer back in May. I wonder what he said. I wonder if what he said applies to Donald Trump, because today we found out that Trump and his family did exactly that. According to Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, which started an investigation into the money Trump was making while he was president back in 2016, Trump's family businesses received nearly $8 million from 20 foreign governments during his time in office. That is just a small sliver of what the committee members were able to uncover before Comer put an end to the investigation when he took charge of the committee. The countries that sent their money to the Trump family include China, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, India, Malaysia, Afghanistan, the Philippines, and the United Arab Emirates, among many, many others. These countries and related subsidiaries funneled their money through various Trump locations in Washington, D.C., Las Vegas, and New York. Today, Chairman Comer, with zero sense of irony, defended Donald Trump, saying, quote, it is beyond parody that Democrats continue their obsession with former President Trump. Former President Trump has legitimate businesses, but the Bidens do not. Okay. So here's the one thing Congressman Comer did get right. President Biden doesn't have businesses. The problem for Republicans is that they haven't got a shred, a scintilla of evidence that Biden is in any way involved in his son's businesses. And he hasn't taken foreign money as president, which Trump did. And that is a big problem because the Constitution literally prohibits a president from accepting money, payments or gifts of any kind whatsoever from foreign governments unless they get permission from Congress, which Trump never did. Of course, these days, Republicans see the Constitution as whatever Donald Trump says it is, so whatever. Uh, joining me now is Congressman Robert Garcia of California, a member of the House Oversight Committee, who actually does care what the Constitution says. Tell us what you found. I mean, look, what we uncovered and what we put out today um, is startling. Uh, it should scare any American. And quite frankly, it shows the illegal grift that Donald Trump and his family have put on this on this country. I think first we got to take a look at the bigger picture. What we uncovered is just a slice, like you said, of essentially the big pie, the tip of the iceberg. We were allowed to uncover about eight million dollars worth of illegal gifts that are barred under the Constitution, certainly from any president taking from over 20 foreign countries. Now, we if we have full access, we would be able to uncover the likely millions and millions more of illegal gifts and bribes mm -hmm. that the Kushners and the Donald Trump family took. But this, we've been able to get some information, fortunately, even though Comer is trying to stop all of it from being revealed. And, and so we, we see that China, in your report, the committee documented $5,572,000 plus dollars in spending at Trump-owned property. So the way they were getting him this money, they spend at his properties, right, at the, the major properties that you looked at. You have China, you have India, Malaysia, Afghanistan. These, they're, they're basically running the money through the properties, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait. But China being the biggest one actually stands out to me. Absolutely. But let's remember, we're talking about the report was only able to get documents from four properties. Right. Donald Trump has hundreds hundreds of properties and, and allied businesses all around the world. And so we are getting just a small slice of an enormous corruption grift that we've got to uncover, and Comer's blocking every step of the way. And you mentioned Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. for example. Sure. I mean, think about just the amount of corruption in Saudi Arabia. Jared Kushner gets appointed the lead person in the Middle East against the, the desires of his own Secretary of State, of Trump's Rex Tillerson. Yeah. He's a main envoy. He puts together a $110 billion arms deal. Uh, he starts producing all sorts of deals with the, with the Saudis. And then let's not forget, Kushner leaves the White House and just two months later has a two 
billion dollars with a B yeah. investment fund paid by the Saudi government. Yeah. This is a grift while at the same time the Saudis, the government is pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into Trump properties here in D.C. and across the globe. You know, what's interesting about this and what's interesting and what's scary about it is that, you know, I tend to think about Donald Trump wanting to get back in president so into the White House so desperately because he wants to stay out of prison. But the other motivation to get back in is it's a great grift. He's making money. He's using the prestige of the presidency and people who want to bribe him just have to swipe their card at his hotels. I'm not sure if a lot of people remember this, but Donald Trump years ago said that if elected president, he'd be the first person to actually make money. Yes, he did off say of that. being president. He did. And, and we should believe him. We've, we've learned now we should know that when Donald Trump says something, we should yeah. take him for his word. He is making money and made money off the presidency, wants to continue to make more money off the presidency on top of, of course, staying in jail. And, and let's, let's just shift just for a moment. One of the ways in which he's trying to get back in is using, obviously, racism, right? And racism against people who are coming in through the border is one of his go-to grifts. Um, you tweet. Let me read you your own tweet. Speaker Mike Johnson headed down to the border with all the House Republicans, did a little photo op. And you said Speaker Johnson and House Republicans are at the border engaging in a political stunt and sham. They don't want to actually fix our immigration system. They only want to demonize suffering human beings. I wonder if they will be reading any of the, any Bible verses during their visit. We know Texas Congressman Troy Nels was one of those guys. He said, let me tell you, I'm not willing to do a damn thing right now to help a Democrat or help Joe Biden's approval rating. I will not help the Democrats try to improve this man's dismal approval ratings. I'm not going to do it. Why would I? Basically saying we're not passing anything. So it is just performative. Performative. Oh, look, I, I'm an immigrant. I came to the U.S. when I was a young kid. I gained citizenship in my early 20s. Immigrants helped build this country. Um, it is shameful. It is gross what the Republicans are doing in demonizing immigrants. Donald Trump is doing it every single day. He did it on the day he announced his campaign for the presidency. And he is pushing uh, his racism, uh, his attacks on black and brown people in this country should sicken all Americans. And on this issue of border security and the border, I mean, let's be very clear. One, we haven't had an immigration reform policy in this country for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. On President Biden's first day in office, he proposed an immigration reform package. And even right now in the negotiations, in this negotiation about the supplemental and foreign sure. aid, it's been President Biden that has put forward additional money for mm -hmm. Border Patrol agents, for technology, uh, for actually working and providing support for nonprofits on the ground. And so there are solutions out there, but Republicans don't want solutions. They actually don't want to fix anything. They want to demonize and attack immigrants along the border. And the thing about it is you can Buying these two stories together, what you have is Donald Trump and Republicans using sort of white scare, right? Just a brown scare, you know, trying to scare their mainly white base about brown people to de to get themselves back into power. They don't want to do anything with that power to fix the issue. They just want the power. And for Donald Trump, he wants the cash. And 100 percent. I mean, this is Donald Trump is essentially, in my opinion, broken American politics. He has demonized uh, our institutions. He is tearing, tries to take down and tear down our institutions, literally try to overthrow an election and an insurrection against our capital. And so this is someone that has no core. His core value is making money off the American yeah. people. Yeah. He believes that he should be in charge, not just be in charge of our country for good and forever, but he should make him and his family an enormous amount of money while he's doing so. And so this report today is a piece of of just the scandal and the con that Donald Trump is. Indeed, it's, 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 it's a grift. It's a giant grift, but there's a lot of marks, unfortunately, that are falling for it. Congressman Robert Garcia, thank you very much for your time. Still ahead, if you think conservative billionaires' war on progress will end with the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay, think again. More on their ongoing attempts to turn back time after this. The attacks that drove out Harvard President Claudine Gay were the product of a concerted right-wing crusade against diversity in public life that's been in the making since, if we're being real, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
And it won't stop with higher education. Republicans are also at war with diversity, equity, and inclusion, a.k.a. DEI, programs in corporate America. Case in point, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' Stop Woke Act, banning diversity training in the workplace. Their efforts got a major boost from the far-right majority on the Supreme Court, which struck down affirmative action in higher education last year. The man who led the crusade to kill affirmative action at colleges like Harvard, white attorney Ed Blum, who sued the university on behalf of Asian students, even though he had no Asian plaintiffs, has been at the center of the fight in corporate America as well. Blum has sued venture capital firms funding black women entrepreneurs and major U.S. law firms over their DEI programs. Meanwhile, in the wake of the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas and the subsequent war on Gaza, the anti-DEI brigade is weaponizing concerns about rising anti-Semitism to make their case to bring down DEI programs everywhere. Leading voices from the crusade against Dr. Claudine Gay aren't even pretending anymore that it was ever really about campus anti-Semitism. It was about the diversity they hate so much. Take Bill Ackman, the billionaire Harvard donor who led the donor class charge calling for Dr. Gay to resign over the plagiarism charge. Now calling for the entire Harvard board to resign, calling DEI racist because reverse racism is racism. Although it is worth noting that Business Insider discovered that Ackman's wife, Neri Oxman, an architect and designer, plagiarized her own 2010 doctoral dissertation at MIT. She says she's now double-checking her work and apologized. I guess he's willing to overlook his hard-line stance on plagiarism in this particular case. In response to Ackman's full-throated assault on DEI, today the National Action Network picketed outside of Ackman's Manhattan office in protest of his campaign against Dr. Gay and his war on DEI. In a statement, Nan said, If he doesn't think black Americans belong in the C-suite, the Ivy League, or any other hallowed halls, we'll make ourselves at home outside his office. Joining me now is the president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Uh, Reverend Al, it's good to see you. This was the uh, post. uh, There was like a 4,000-word post that Ackman put out. Um, He put another one up about your protest today. And he said, I would be delighted to sit with Mr. Sharpton and discuss any concerns he might have about anything I have said or done in connection with Harvard and Claudine Gay. I encourage anyone who knows Mr. Sharpton to ask him to reach out to me directly. Well, I know Mr. Sharpton. Would you like to talk to Mr. Ackman? Well, talk about what uh, he has said in very plain language, that this is about NVDEI. He called for the board of Harvard uh, the whole board to resign, even after they have uh, forced the resignation of Dr. Gay, because Dr. Gay was really a pawn for them to go after DEI. And that's the number. Uh, as you accurately said, they've been after diversity and after inclusion since 64 Civil Rights Act. And they certainly made a lot of commitments in the private sector. Uh, in 2020 around George Floyd that they've not kept. So today, to make it clear to them that there is not going to be uh, a, a easy fight. We're going to fight in the streets, in the courts, to preserve the rights of people in this country to demand diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not as a handout, the taxpayers with consumers. If they think we're going to keep consuming their goods, and keep paying taxes that they enjoy 
uh, tax rebates, uh, tax abatements, investments in municipalities, while they have a structured bias against us, then today was just a small token of as we build up. We need DEI is because we had D-E-N-Y. We've been denied contracts. We've been denied access to promotions. We've been denied seats on the board. And we're going to keep fighting D-E-N-Y until we can make permanent and clear we have DEI and they're going to keep their commitment. So today we, we decided to throw a punch back and our supporting organizations will be joining us in the coming weeks. They want to fight. They got one. You know, um, one can be you can tell a lot by the company that one keeps. And uh, Mr. Ackman's one of his big backers and supporters is Elon Musk, who one might recall. Uh, he well, he said DEI must die. He criticized diversity schemes and called them racist. He says diversity, equity, inclusion are propaganda words. Let us note that uh, when in his own company, Tesla, when he could create an environment to his liking, uh, workers called Tesla's factory the plantation and the slave ship, especially because black workers were routinely segregated into a corner of the factory that lacked air conditioning and work conditions were the most crowded. Um, a black Tesla employee described a culture of racism, says, I was at my breaking point in 2022. So when he had it his way to run his company as he liked— Pre the lawsuits, he ran them in an extremely racist way. And I guess that's the kind of environment he thinks should exist everywhere in corporate America. Your thoughts? My thoughts are that we must remember how did we get the GI programs in the first place? How did we get the Civil Rights Act of 64? By fighting, by boycotting, by putting pressure on cities and states and federal governments to not in any way give underpinnings to these companies that are committed to exclusion of people, black, brown, Asian, women, gays, you can you can make all of the changes you want. You cannot force us to buy your products and you cannot use taxpayer dollars as people in elective office that are saying, if that's what you choose, then we will make life uncomfortable for you in terms of what you use city for. The city controller, the top Jewish elected official in the city of New York, Picketed with us today, Brad Lander. This is going across the board, and this today was only the beginning of the street heat. We'll be working with the legal and other people that are in the coalition of civil rights groups that have worked together on these issues. Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you very much. Much appreciated. And of course, we will keep an eye on this story. Thank you. Coming up next, starvation becomes a growing concern in Gaza as Israel continues its assault despite the now deafening international calls for a ceasefire. We'll be right back. We're a horrific 90 days into the Israel-Hamas war and the situation in Gaza is just getting worse. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, more than 22,000 people have died in Gaza, with more than 57,000 injured and thousands missing. Israeli strikes continued to bombard Gaza today, striking an area that had previously been declared a safe zone by Israel, according to Palestinian officials. Almost 2 million people have been displaced, 85% of the population, and at least half are starving. Though the U.N. stresses that, quote, everyone is hungry and skipping meals is the norm. 
In a striking interview, the chief economist for the U.N.'s World Food Program said he'd never seen anything like this before in terms of severity and speed. The situation is particularly bad in Rafah, on Gaza's border with Egypt, where there are at least one million displaced people sleeping out in the open without adequate clothing. Stun- stunning drone f- video from earlier this week shows crowds of people lining up for food. This comes as far-right Israeli ministers are openly calling for the displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, which the U.N. human rights chief commented on today, saying he's, quote, very disturbed by high-level Israeli official statements on plans to transfer civilians from Gaza to third countries, noting that international law prohibits forcible transfer of protected persons within or deportation from occupied territory. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to the Middle East tonight on a tour expected to focus largely on easing resurgent fears that the Israel-Hamas war could erupt into a broader conflict in the wake of attacks in the Red Sea, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.